0: Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. In today's special ASCO 2021 episode, Craig Underhill talks to Gilberto Lopez and Mel Moore about all things lung cancer. It's a thorough and entertaining discussion covering practice-changing developments and controversial trials. As ever, you'll find full biographies, Twitter handles, and all the links to the papers discussed in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Bavin and this is the Oncology Podcast.
1: G'day, g'day, g'day. It's A great pleasure to welcome two superstars of thoracic oncology to our Oncology Journal Club podcast special on ASCO lung cancer. So firstly, Gilberto Lopez, who is the chief of the medical oncology service at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami. He's also editor-in-chief of JCO Global Oncology, originally from Brazil, now forging his career in the US. The most tweeted person at the ASCO 2021 meeting, apparently. Welcome to the podcast, Gilberto, and thanks for coming on.
2: I would say that's a dubious uh, claim for fame, but uh, but it's a pleasure to be with you here, though.
1: Fantastic. And one of the key opinion leaders, certainly in Australia, is Melissa Moore, from medical oncologist from St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. She's a board member of the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australia, I noticed on her Twitter bio that she follows the Sydney Swans. I'm not sure how many friends she's gonna win by stating that, but nevertheless, she's <laughs> a lovely person. Thanks for coming on Mel.
0: Thanks, Craig, for the invitation. And no, down here in Melbourne, not many not many compatriots steering for the Sydney Swans, unfortunately. Right.
1: You should keep that a secret if you're working in Melbourne, I think.
0: Uh, <laughs> loud and <Yeah>. proud, Craig.
1: <laughs> this is the Aussie <laughs> rules, Gilberto. Aussie rules
0: football. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Take yeah. you to a game
0: if you're down here again, Gilberto. I
2: used to play rugby as a teenager, so it's been a while.
0: Oh, brilliant.
1: Wow. I thought that you would be a round ball football player coming no, from... Uh, a would
2: probably have to be too good to play football in Brazil. My dad yeah, played okay. back in the day, but this was in the wow. 60s.
1: Yeah, good on you. All right, well, let's get into it. It was a good ASCO for lung cancer, I think. There was a f- couple of new things, but also things that probably helping us a little bit, trying to w- sort out what the standard of care is. So firstly, in advanced lung cancer, Gilberto, if you just want to outline for us, there was a a couple of studies we wanted to touch on, the Checkmate 227 and the Checkmate 9LA4.
2: Absolutely. So let me start with uh, 9LA4, because that's the one I really don't know how to place in clinic today. So that's always a good way to start. This is the study that Martin Rack presented. It's uh, very interesting and very nicely designed. Patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer who did not have sensitizing EGFR mutations or alcohol alterations, as in all of the new immunotherapy trials we we're seeing, uh, were randomized to receive chemotherapy and optional pemetrexate maintenance was allowed. And in the study arm, patients also got uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab, and they only got the chemotherapy for two cycles And here they're using the one milligram per kilogram dose of EP every six weeks, which is a lot easier to tolerate than the dose that we used to use in melanoma or that we still use in melanoma as a single agent at least. And we had seen the results of this trial already. And out of um, a little bit more than 700 patients randomized, we saw medium survivals improving from 11 months in the chemo arm to 15.8 months with the NEVO plus EP plus two cycles of chemo. And there's a few interesting takes for me for this study. On the update uh, at 24 months, we had 26% versus 38% of patients alive, and this is the overall survival data that was updated at ASCO. And toxicity, we didn't see anything new in terms of toxicity. The other update was on progression free survival and duration of response at two years, 34% versus 12% of patients had their response at two years. And for the PFS, at two years, 20% of patients had not progressed versus eight for a ep versus schema. So these results are pretty in line what, with what we have seen in other trials. You can get up to 20 months or 21 months in keynote 189 with pembrolizumab uh, plus chemotherapy, but in general, and of course, it's, we always have to take these uh, cross-trial comparisons with a grain of salt because of differences in populations and so on. But in general, we see that these are all in the same ballpark. So not taking PDL one in consideration or imagining patients with pd one less than 50%, we do have very similar results for chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, for chemotherapy plus atezolizumab, or for just two cycles of chemotherapy plus EP Evo, as we saw in 9LA. So I really don't have much. And as a aside, we had one patient today that we might think of using this regimen. It has been approved in the US, so it's not an issue for us. But I have trouble thinking of who are the patients that might get two cycles of chemo, but not four. And I guess you might have the occasional patient that develops toxicity with chemo, around the first or second cycle, you feel relatively comfortable about continuing the epinevo alone if that's the case. But I guess most of us would feel comfortable continuing just the and pembrolizumab or just immunotherapy if that was the case. So it's an interesting trial. But as this was the latest of a series of trials showing that we could improve on chemotherapy by adding immunotherapy in one way or another, it really didn't get to become very popular, at least not in the United States.
0: The it's- other thing I'd just say about the, um, the 9LA data that was presented that I found interesting was the, it seemed that those patients that had to discontinue due to toxicity still got ongoing benefit. And I know anecdotally um, some of my patients that have been involved in 227, not this trial, obviously, but still dual immunotherapy, that if they stop due to toxicity, you're worried about or tox, even stopping during during because of resist progression. They're still two, three years down the track and have, have relatively controlled disease. So I think there's something to be said there for the ongoing immune surveillance, despite not being able to complete the full course of treatment.
2: Absolutely. And uh, that is something that we take in consideration as well. Somebody that develops severe toxicity and we need to stop. In the past, we kind of wanted to restart immunotherapy right away until these patients were better. And now with some data coming out of the two-year data out of pembrolizumab, we feel a little bit more comfortable stopping and just restarting if we need to. So that's an interesting observation indeed.
1: Although just on that topic, there was a paper at this meeting that looked at response and association with survival. And in fact, it was the patients that got grade one and two toxicity seemed to do the best. So the threes and fours obviously stopped early and maybe didn't do as well, or maybe, you know, uh, were sick from the toxicity, but sort of that balance, isn't it? You want to see a little bit of toxicity, but not too severe.
2: That was a very intriguing analysis. That was the Empower trial uh, joint analysis that Mark Sosinski presented. And the interesting thing is that the patients who didn't get immunotherapy, if they had immune-related adverse events, which I didn't quite understand how those mm. came being, I guess it's the type of event, and I guess that these were placebo-controlled, so you didn't know if the patient was getting immunotherapy or not, so they got reported as immune-related events. Uh, those patients who didn't get immunotherapy but had, quote-unquote, immune-related adverse events, did better as well. So, it's an interesting finding and it, it's curious. It is.
0: I must say, I spent that entire presentation wondering, was I missing something with the immune-related adverse events in the in the non-immune therapy arm? But yeah, it was very interesting data and it's sort of analogous to what we see in the colorectal cancer population and cetuximab side effects. So, watch this space, I think.
1: So, let's switch just to 227. So, different design in the same essential population of patients?
2: Part of the trial for pd one positive patients, 1% or more, and then you had part of the trial that was for those that expressed pd one at less than 1%, and then patients could get Nivo-EP versus chemo versus nevo or nevo ep plus chemo versus Nivo-chemo. And the update at ASCO this year was the four-year overall survival for those patients with expression of 1% or greater, and we keep seeing that patients who receive nevo ep do better than those that receive chemotherapy with numbers that are very similar to what we just quoted for 9LA. So at 48 months now, patients who received NEVO and EPI uh, had a 29% survival um, in this four-year mark versus 18% for patients on chemo. And they did show us results for non-squamous and for squamous. And those data uh, look a little bit better for non-squamous, 32 versus 23 And for squamous, 20 versus about 6%. So patients who do receive NIVO and NIPI without a chemotherapy backbone also do better than patients who receive chemo. And this is a very interesting regimen for those patients who do not want to do chemotherapy. Um, From the update at this year, I mentioned the uh, overall survival. They also showed the overall survival for patients with PD-1 of 50% or greater. And for these patients at 48 months, 37% of patients were alive in evo-EP versus 20 in chemo. It's interesting that we start seeing plateaus even for the patients who were in the trial, which you probably means that they got immunotherapy after the trial, and that's why you're seeing a plateau that we didn't used to see in trials before chemo- immunotherapy became available. What else did they present that was interesting? They also presented an update on overall survival for patients with PD-L1 less than 1%. And this for us is a little unusual or um, interesting, but maybe we can't act on this in the U.S. because EP and Evo were approved here for patients who expressed at least 1% of PD-L1. And at uh, four years, 48 months, 24% of patients on EVO-EP were alive versus 10% of patients on chemo. Uh, non-squamous, that was 25 versus 12, and squamous, it was 22 versus five. So people are now asking, is this a regimen we should use for patients on squamous cell who have a squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer, and express less than 1% one So this is kind of the niche that people are starting to look into. When we really get to the number of patients in the trial at that point, we're talking about 10 to 20 patients per hour, so it's a little hard for us to make a categorical decision in that manner, but that's what some people have been discussing. I I don't know what you think, Mel.
0: Look, we don't have this available to us in Australia, Gilberto. My site took part in this study and I guess I'd just remind our younger listeners that this was a study that came about before we were, had routine pd one expression. So we were relying on sending tissue centrally to get that result. So you really were explaining um, a six-arm trial to patients. So it was, a, it was a big ask. Look, I think it's attractive to, to be able to avoid chemotherapy. So I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed that we don't have access to this and certainly the patients that I treated on this regimen tolerated the nivolumab and the ipilimumab well. I guess what we need to say about all the both the studies that we've discussed so far is that because this field is moving so quickly is that it, it's not compared to the, the current standard which is either monotherapy, especially in the greater than 50% PD-L1 or the chemo, Pembro in the negatives and the less than 50%. So it's hard to make comparisons um, without that, that standard arm. I, I note that in this study there is a nevo alone arm for the pdiol1 less than 1% or in both sections actually both pdiol1 expressing tumors but the tri- the study wasn't powered to look at nevo IPI versus nevo so i don't think we can read a lot into that sort of data
1: well in fact they haven't reported all of that data have they the comparison so that's one of the flaws in in the reporting of this so far and one of the controversies so we'll come back to talk about can we work out the standard of care or not just briefly, let's look at the pooled analysis from the FDA for the PD-L1, uh, PD-L1 one to forty-nine percent, because that's a common population of patients, right? We don't, we often see the low PD-L1s, or you know, probably in working practice. So, what did that analysis show, Gilberto?
2: So this is an interesting study. The FDA now has taken a much more active stance in actually aggregating data that they use for approval and using that. To try to generate new insights. So it was really interesting to see Dr. Akimboro's presentation at ASCO. And what they were looking into is that in the US, we have single agent immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors approved for those, that, those patients that have PD-1 of 50% or above. And we have single agent or combinations approved for those patients that have expression of between 1 and 49 And this is an extremely interesting point because in a lot of our trials, we really don't know for sure if what drove the benefit was the patients above 50% and is it safe for us to use immunotherapy alone for those patients that express between 1 and 49. And that's something that in practice we really don't do. It's very rare that we use immunotherapy alone, uh, at least as a single agent, PD-1 or PD-1 inhibitor. We would usually prefer using chemo plus immunotherapy. So they actually set up to take a look at the combined data and see if they could tease out and tell us if there were any differences in overall survival and uh, progression-free survival. Of course, all these patients did not have EGFR or ALK alterations, and they used the usual definitions for pd one expression, and the statistical methods was pretty adequate in what we would expect for such an analysis. And they put together Keynote uh, 42, which was Pembrolizumab as a single agent, Checkmate 227, which is a combination of immunotherapy. And then the combined chemoimmunotherapy trials were Keynote 189, 407, and 21, uh, Empower 150 and 130, and uh, CA 2099 LA, which actually had NIVO and uh, IPI, uh, just as we discussed a few minutes ago. And they got about 639, exactly, actually, not about patients with chemo IO arm and 529 in the IO only. And the comparison the comparison results are what we might expect. Um, IO only, we saw a medium survival of 14.5 months and chemo IO, that number reached 21.4 months. That has a ratio of 0.68 and it did not include one. So this is a statistically significant result as well. The curves are pretty separate uh, from the beginning. Uh, So this does confirm our bias that for patients between 1 and 49, we should strive to try to use chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. They had similar results for progression-free survival. How the ratio was 0.6. The medians were 4.2 and 7.7. And I think that this is an important message because in trials where we do see a benefit for immunotherapy as a single agent, there's usually a crisscrossing of the curves. And there's a moment in the beginning in the first few months when immunotherapy actually seems to be worse. And I think that in chemo, abrogates that phenomenon.
1: Now, did we see the same in this trial? Was there was there at the start of the curve did the immunotherapy patients do worse?
2: This, actually, they did worse throughout. So here they did worse for PFS and OS from the beginning. The patient's getting chemo and IO, and we have to remember that in the trials, the comparator arm was chemo alone, not chemo and IO. So in this indirect analysis of chemo IO versus IO, uh, Kimoyo certainly did better in the one to 49. It's important to mention that a few studies have looked at the same question for patients with expression of 50% or greater. And there we don't seem to see a difference in overall survival. We do see differences in progression free survival and in response rates in a number of meta-analyses that have been published, including one that we did. But in terms of overall survival, we really don't see a benefit of adding chemo for patients with PD-1 of 50% or above. And Mel, Mel was asking if in any group, if we didn't see, we, we saw if any groups could actually get immunotherapy alone. And patients above the age of 75 or 75 and above uh, did seem to do about the same. They did worse than younger patients with medium survivals of about 10.3 for IO only and 13.9 for IO. So even there, if a patient can tolerate chemo, I would still try to do that. And that's what I remember in looking at the slides that I remember was significant.
1: Yep. So if we break it down into some categories now, like what our options are for standard of care based on all this data and this update from the 1 to 49. So in elderly patients, if their performance score is okay, does that alter what you do?
2: If patients have a good performance status, I would usually try to do chemo and immunotherapy. And I usually use single agent PD1 PD1 inhibitors and not the CTLA4 plus PD1 or PD1.
1: So for the PD1 high, we now have a choice of single agent IO or combination chemo IO. Is that is that correct?
2: That's no? correct. In the, oh, sorry, so just to mention that in the US, we actually have three of them approved now. We have a we have semiplimab, and we have um, a pembrolizumab. So we have a, a lot of options. Unfortunately, they all cost about the same. We would hope to see some competition, but we don't quite see it yet.
0: So Craig, as you know, our options here in Australia are um, chemo, or pembrolizumab monotherapy. I must say, in in a lot of my patients with greater than fifty percent pd one expression, I'm still using monotherapy, and I think that differs around different centres. Certainly, if someone has high disease burden or is very young and fit, I'd probably lean towards dual therapy. But I think the data from monotherapy was very compelling in the more than fifty percent pd one expression, and if people can avoid chemotherapy. And its toxicity, I think that's a great thing.
1: Yep, that's pretty much what we do here as well. And now for the 1 to 49s, has this pooled analysis changed things? Would it tip you towards doing the combo rather than single agent, Mel?
0: I've been using the combo anyway. Craig, I haven't really felt comfortable with monotherapy in this group, and I guess look for a, a more elderly or a frail patient. You may consider it. It certainly doesn't seem you know, didn't seem worse than chemotherapy in the in the keynote 042 and 024. But I would, and this would just really reinforce my desire to give dual therapy in this particular subset of patients.
1: Yep, and then for the PDL zero it's pretty and no other actionable mutation it's pretty much combination it's pretty clear now
0: yeah and i think our choice here in australia now is the chemo pembro or we do have nine la regimen available to us so chemo two cycles and, and NEVO. and i look i to be honest i haven't used the nine la regimen in the context of just normal clinical practice as yet but it's it's nice to have options
1: and Gilberto, in those low one do you use epinevo uh, plus chemo?
2: So 1 to 49, we most often use chemotherapy plus one agent, and uh, pembrolizumab is most commonly used, but some people do use atezolizumab. Uh, we do have a few colleagues that use uh, 9LA, but uh, it's uh, definitely a minority.
1: Okay. And squamous, is that different, or do you just treat them the same?
2: Except for the femitrexate backbone not being used, I pretty much treat the same. Now some people are making the argument, but I think that the number of patients is too small for us to make an argument that EP plus NEVA would be of benefit. So I think the dream is still out there.
1: Fantastic. So that's a great discussion. Thank you very much, both of you. Let's switch track. We'll go back a step now to the locally advanced lung cancer and maybe look at the five-year results of Pacific. So this is something, again, that we have available in Australia now for some time with Divalumab. Mel, do you want to just quickly outline the uh, results of this study?
0: So, we know that Pacific was a uh, study for unresectable stage three non small cell lung cancer patients. Patients had their standard chemo radiotherapy. And for those patients that hadn't progressed, they were randomized to either placebo for 12 months or Devalumab every two weeks for 12 months. And there have been previous high-level publications showing a survival benefit for the patients in the divalumab arm. And this study, this presentation was the updated five-year survival and remains impressive. So at the five-year mark, the updated overall survival was 42.9% in the divalumab versus 33.4% in the placebo arm, leading to a hazard ratio of 0.72 with a, a significant um confidence interval and and p-value. So look not not groundbreaking new data, but certainly very reassuring to get this update that there does seem to be a little plateauing of the curve there and, and hopefully we're seeing ongoing longer term survival for this high risk population that look really previously when we're speaking to these patients, we treat we speak about treating them with curative intent, but we know that the risk of relapse is still very high. So it's great yeah. to be able to offer something else.
1: I think we always used to say sort of 25 30% chance of long term survival is that correct and now this would suggest we've leapt up a little bit on the
0: in that Definitely left leapt up in the um Devalumab arm and I guess even the control arm is performing relatively well which really you know makes that hazard ratio even more impressive
1: Yeah just a practice tip Gilberto I've seen a few patients getting pneumonitis and I just Wonder, you know, that's one of the risks of this regimen. And I just wonder sometimes in the study they're allowed to, and on, on our prescribing system in Australia, you're allowed to, to have a significant gap between the end of the radiotherapy, chemoradiotherapy, and starting. In practical terms, when do you start the dovolumab? Is it straight after the radiotherapy or do you wait a bit? Uh,
2: so one of the subset analysis, subgroup analysis, when Pacific was initially presented, suggested mm-hmm. that those that started immunotherapy within two weeks of the end of chemo radiation did better. So we tried to start as soon as possible. I haven't seen data confirming that in the update. So I'm going to take a look at the um, updated publications to see if there's anything new in that regard. But I don't remember seeing those numbers again. So we tried to start within two to three weeks of finishing chemo radiation as long as patients don't have symptoms often we'll do a chest x-ray make sure there's no infiltrates that we would uh, worry about pneumonitis. so I was surprised positively that the uh, rates of pneumonitis were way less than I expected they would be in Pacific and that has been a great finding
1: yep and mel the same with you, you just get straight on to the Devalumab when they finish the treatment?
0: Yeah, I do, Craig. I think getting started as soon as possible is ideal, especially in light of the data that Gilberto just mentioned. It depends on the patient. It depends how they've pulled up after treatment and do they need a, a bit of a break before getting into 12 months of, of adjuvant Devalumab, but try to start as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. Now, if we go back another step now, adjuvant. So this was one of the controversies of the meeting. Roberto, do you want to lead off and telling us a little bit about Empower 010, the uh, adjuvant uh, study?
2: Absolutely. So this is the study we were all waiting for for ASCO 2021. We had a press release a couple months before the meeting that let us know that the disease-free survival data was positive and we were expecting to see how positive, what the degree, what the hazard ratio was, et cetera, et cetera. So IMPOWER-010 is a phase 3 trial. Patients with resected stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer were eligible. They uh, would receive adjuvant chemotherapy before going on an immunotherapy. And this is hoping to build on what we know in terms of the benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy. Patients could receive cisplatin with either pemetrexate, those attacks or vineralbin, And about 1,000 patients were randomized to receive either best supportive care after that or tizolizumab, twelve hundred milligrams every three days as the usual doses for a total of 16 cycles. And stratification factors included male versus female, the stage, histology, pd one expression, and primary endpoint was disease-free survival. And this is the stickiest point, if that word even exists, when we go for the discussion because... Disease-free survival, if it correlates with overall survival, it is an extremely important endpoint. It is an endpoint that is quicker to reach than it would be with overall survival, but it's not necessarily always translate, especially when we see things like targeted agents, EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and alkyrosine kinase inhibitors. Even though with those in Mertinib, we have seen data in DFS that has led to the approval in the advanced setting in the U.S., When we look at the erlotinib and jefitinib trials that have enough follow-up, that has not translated into an overall survival benefit. So does immunotherapy behave like that or is immunotherapy different And as in trials with chemotherapy in which DFS correlates with OS? Are we going to see that or not with immunotherapy? That's the big, big question. But of course, if we do have a high enough benefit, a large enough benefit, even with DFS, many of us would think that this is something that we should incorporate. And I certainly would not be surprised if the FDA approves this for adjuvant use in the U.S. in a few months. The statistical analysis plan is something that we have started to see more often in immunotherapy trials. It's a hierarchically uh, organized with three primary analysis populations. So first, you do an analysis for disease-free survival in the 1% stage 2 to 3A population. Then if that's positive, you do an all-randomized stage 2 to 3A. And then if that's positive, you do for the 1B to 3A. And then if that's positive, that's when you get to do the analysis for overall survival. So it does make it a little harder and longer for us to get to the final definitive Mm -hmm. um, endpoint. Baseline characteristics were similar in both patients. And for the PDL 1% or greater stage 2 to 3A population, which was the primary endpoint that was presented at the meeting... We saw that the medium disease for survival was not reached in the atezolizumab group versus 35.3 months in best supportive care, which is usually what we see in trials around the world in adjuvant setting. And the hazard ratio is 0.66. So that is a positive enough, it's a large enough effect that we would consider clinically significant as well. P-value was 0.04. 95% confidence interval was 0.5 to 0.88. When we look at the 36-month data point, 48.2% of patients were alive and disease-free in the chemotherapy arm versus 60%. So it's a 12% or so difference, uh, absolute difference in disease-free survival of three years. So this is clinically significant, but who truly were the patients who benefited? And when we look at the subgroup analysis, we do see that patients that had a pd one that was higher were patients that actually had a larger benefit. We see that the hazard ratio for those with 50% or greater was 0.43, and for those with um, pd one less than 1%, it was 0.97, suggesting that there was no benefit without... Um, pd one expression, and that those with pd one of uh, 1% or above, the hazard ratio is 0.66, but we always have the doubt. Is that being driven by those that were 50% or above, or is that truly what you see for those between 1 and 49? So if you ask me today, I think that there's a clear benefit for those with 50% and above, and I would not be surprised or upset for an approval based on these numbers alone for those between one and forty-nine, I would love to see more data to see if that degree of benefit, if that size of benefit in DFS is, is enough for us to suggest approval or not. If you ask me, what's going to happen? I think it will be approved for the whole wow. okay. uh, of the study in the U.S. because that's what the FDA has done with uh, drugs recently. That DFS, disease survival, was the primary endpoint, so they go by what the primary endpoint is at least while we wait for overall survival data. So this is an extremely interesting study. It's proof of concept that at least some patients clearly have a, a, a benefit from using adjuvant immunotherapy.
1: Mel, you know, this is a real change. Like We were always taught and we always told our juniors that you needed to wait for the survival data. So now we've seen it in last year. We saw with the adjuvant Aussie with ADURA, a big controversy, and there's still publications coming out with debates about that. Uh, at this meeting, there was Olympia, which was a BRCA mutated breast cancer and adjuvant PARP inhibitor, similar big benefit, disease free survival. Everyone's saying that's could be the standard of care. We saw it in renal cancer with adjuvant IO post nephrectomy, disease free survival, no overall survival data yet. People advocating f- for that. So this is a real change and that your thoughts, Mel, it's, um,
0: yeah, I think I agree, Craig. It is a change, and I think we're going to have to change the way we're looking at these endpoints. I mean, clearly, very big trials are being designed with DFS as the primary endpoint, so we can't help that unless we're actually inside that process. but I think it's going to be hard to show an overall survival benefit or harder because most of the patients in the best supportive care arm of this study will go on to get immune therapy at relapse. I think overall survival is is easier to determine when patients don't have many options post the drug that you're investigating. And I guess from a the other way to look at it is from a patient point of view. I think any drug that can clinically delay the time to developing symptoms from metastatic disease. I suspect if you ask most patients, they would, they would take that. If they can have a longer period of time being well, being able to live a relatively normal life without metastatic disease, that is probably a key endpoint for them. I guess the caveats to that are these sort of trials are not picking up time of of symptom occurrence, they're picking up time of a, a spot showing up on a scan, which may have been asymptomatic still for some time. So we don't know whether picking up metastatic disease earlier is any, any better. Look, I would agree with Gilberto that the, it's quite compelling in the high PETI or one subgroup hazard ratio of 0.43. I think it would change my practice. I think it, if it was funded in Australia, and that's the other question here. You know, I think it would be you'd be hard pressed not to have a, a discussion with patients about the benefits, and that's the other thing. Having having discussions with patients about endpoints is challenging. I think there's probably some endpoints that, as oncologists, we find puzzling, let alone as a, a layperson patient. Uh, but I think this is an exciting study. You know, as is immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant arm. I think that's even more exciting. So I I would hope that this gets consideration in Australia, particularly for the high pedial one population.
1: I think you're right. The thing that worries me is that life-changing toxicity that can occur in some small number of patients. So there's this big debate going on in Australia, we have a really low rate of, of coronavirus, right? And there's more people in hospital with clots from the AstraZeneca vaccine. And Two people have died in the last month of clots. It's more than the deaths from COVID, right? And so, it's in some ways as an analogy here, like the the whole for the whole population there's, there's a benefit, but you can get catastrophic outcomes for individuals, which is you know hard to predict and can be not reversible. So you know, if you trigger uh, myositis or.
2: You know, without- And uh, the word of caution in this study is that when we look at toxicity, we had 495 patients in each arm, and there were eight deaths that were related to the adverse events in the atezolizumab group, For three in the best care. So, of course, we need to wait and see how that's going to pan out in overall survival, but the curves look exactly the same when all intent-to-treat patients are included, and we see a small separation of curves for those patients with bdl one greater than 1% with a hazard ratio of 0.77. Of course, this is not mature by any means, but we will need to wait and see if that's truly going to translate. Of course, we would need to wait so many years that we have a large number of patients that would not benefit from using it if we would wait for overall survival. So it is, it is a, a very interesting Dilemma because there's pros for both positions. We just need to make decisions as societies, as physicians, and as patients as to what is it that we're going to value and what is it that we're going to use to make a decision.
1: Fantastic. So, look, we're running out of time, but I just we're going to direct people to a couple of links to some of the abstracts. We've got the Code Break 100, which is the KRAS P12C mutated. Tumors—that's significant. Population's about eight percent lung cancer, and so some, you know, a new molecule to use um, there, available in Australia at the moment on study, but not freely available. I think is it being approved in the U.S. now? Gilberto?
2: Extremely exciting. It was approved about two weeks ago, so we are now ordering it for a few of our patients, and we are very excited with the results. We haven't had any approved drugs or any active drugs in uh, KRAS mutant lung cancer or any other malignancies. you I don't know. I'm old enough to remember the transferase inhibitor trials that were negative about 20-plus years ago. Uh, they are kind of making a comeback now for HRAS mutant tumors, but we can talk about that on another day. But this is extremely exciting. The response rates are not uh, ozimertinib good in the Jafar. They're not electinib good in ALK, but they are jefitinib and erlotinib good in EGFR workers. rezotinib good in ALK. So we, we kind of get jaded very quickly and we look at a drug like this and think, oh, this is not that good. I mean, uh, the response rate is very decent, but we're not seeing the durations of response or progression of survival that we see with uh, current generation EGFR ALK inhibitors. So we kind of got jaded very quickly, but this is an amazing new Opportunity for patients with KRAS mutations, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to translate to other malignancies. We're hoping that the data for colon uh, or pancreas, in which KRAS G12C is less common than in lung, would be more interesting. And um, unfortunately, we do see responses, but not as many. This is a, a cysteine inhibitor, so it does. It's not a tyrosine kinase inhibitor; it's an inhibitor, but it binds the cysteine molecule. That's why it works for uh, those mutations that have a succinct uh, residue but not others. And uh, we have a long way to go, but this is certainly a very welcome addition to what we can do. Yeah,
1: fantastic. Just before we go, I did want to touch on the disparity. There was a couple of publications on disparity. And so just a reminder, I guess, that uh, in all these discussions about all these new molecules and pd one that our existing armamentarium is not always available in all the populations geographically or socioeconomically. So, some sobering reminders. And while we've got Gilberto, he's, uh, you know, the editor of the JCO Global Oncology. There's a real need for us to get NGS into routine care and to get access to some of these drugs more broadly. Final comment, Gilberto.
2: Without a doubt, access is one of the biggest issues we deal with. Um, Even in the U.S., we do have centers. For instance, we have a county hospital. Um, The the U.S. in general does not have universal health care coverage, but Miami-Dade County does. We have a county tax that actually funds the public health trust, which provides care for anybody who's been physically in Miami-Dade County for more than three to six months, depending on certain criteria. And then if you do get sick and you get to the county hospital, and then you can actually get care. That does not happen in a number of places in the U.S., but in our county, we are lucky that our political leadership saw that as an important thing to do. So our patients, even if they don't have coverage by private insurance or other public sources, they can get care. But because it is a very limited fund, we really can't do everything that we do in other places in the U.S. So, for instance, I can't use immunotherapy for small cell lung cancer combined with chemotherapy because that was not cost effective in our setting. And that may be one of the very few and unusual situations within the U.S. where we do use or somebody uses cost-effectiveness analysis for this type of decision. But of course, the problem is even bigger when we go to low- and middle income countries, and we have a lot of work to make even the WHO essential medicines list for cancer available in most places. We have a goal uh, in 2025 that I don't think we will reach, which is to have access to more than 80%, 85% of these essential technologies, and we certainly have a lot of work to do.
1: Fantastic. Mel, any final comments? What was your highlight, the lung?
0: I think my highlight was actually code break, Craig, which um, Gilberto has already elaborated on. I guess my final comment would be just on availability of mutation testing and put a plug in for the the TOGA aspiration study, which is looking to perform comprehensive genomic sequencing on newly diagnosed metastatic lung cancer patients. Uh, There's a number of sites open, but patients can also be consented remotely via the Garvin. And we're looking to do this on a 1,000 patients to look at the feasibility um, of doing this and then funneling patients in with particular. Potentially actionable mutations into either standard of care or or clinical trials. So I think it has to be the way of the future that we're doing multiplex testing and and using tissue wisely and so that all patients get access to the best possible treatments.
1: I agree. Couldn't agree more. And then the next step will be making those trials available via telehealth. So if the mutation's found, you know, we can treat a broad range of patients everywhere safely. So Absolutely fantastic discussion it's an exciting time to work in the lung cancer field who would have thought that 10 or 20 years ago <laughs>
0: you know and
1: it is um, it is amazing and i think some of our trainees listening probably just don't realize that the changes in in our careers have been quite extraordinary even where people didn't get treatment for advanced lung cancer universally not so long ago so it is amazing and a lot of work to do, and it's all backed by science. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a great discussion, and look forward to having you both on again sometime soon.
0: Thanks, Craig. Thank enjoyed it. Thanks, Gilberto. Thank
1: you very much.
0: Bye, guys. It was Bye. a pleasure.
2: You've been listening to The Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.